Welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to the primary industry. Each week, I talk with farmers and growers, industry professionals and policy makers to hear their stories and expert opinions on matters relevant to both our rural and our urban communities. This week, I'm chatting with Dr. Robin Dines, who is a farm system scientist at Ag Research. And we're going to talk about certain elements of farm systems and what progress is being made in the reduction of nitrate leaching on farms and importantly, how farmers can meet goals that are being set for them whilst ensuring their businesses are not impacted. Let's check in with Robin now. Hello Robin, thank you for your time today. Good morning Angus. Please can you tell me about the work that you do? I'm a farm system scientist based with Ag Research at Lincoln, just outside of Christchurch. And as a farming system scientist, I work predominantly at the more applied end of our science, and I'm often using the discipline-based science developed by my colleagues and thinking and modelling it and applying it in the farm systems context. So over the last 10 years, I've been involved in in a range of projects. And the one thing they've had in common is understanding the impacts of farm management, farm decision-making on emissions to air, so that's greenhouse gases, and to water, so that's nitrate leaching. What are the things we can control in that situation and how does where we are in the landscape impact on our losses. Today I'm quite keen to talk about what farmers can do to make actual improvements to their footprint on farm from today as we're talking and how the science can be broken down into practical action and indeed with an eye on maintaining their bottom lines which in my view is equally as important as improving the environment. When we're talking about farm systems and environment science and thinking about dairy farmers for example Nitrate leaching immediately springs to my mind. Why is nitrate leaching so bad for our water quality and the environment? So when we look at uh, the environmental impact of, of any land uses, nitrate leaching is nitrate leaching from our farms is one of the indicators that we use from an environmental regulation perspective. And that's about because we know as nitrates enter our waterways, they do have potentially negative impacts on the environment. Now, a lot about what our nitrate leaching numbers will be on farms depends on where that farm, what part of the country New Zealand, of New Zealand they are in, the type of soils they have, the kind of systems they're running. And our soils differ in what we call the attenuation potential, which is the ability of that soil to capture and hold on to those nitrates and ideally to hold on to them for long enough that the plants can pick them up and turn them back into our forages. Mm. And our soils differ in that ability and therefore nitrate leaching is highly dependent on where farms are in the landscape. Mm. What could a farmer do to reduce nitrate leaching? And is there any correlation between nitrate leaching and a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions? Thanks for that question, Angus, because as you've already pointed out, it's so important for science to contribute to the win-win-win. We need solutions that are a win for the business, that are a win for water quality, and now as we look to the future, are a win in terms of our greenhouse gas emissions. So, for example, for the dairy sector, Dairy NZ's been leading a lot of work and a lot of extension messages around, one, know your nitrogen surplus. So the nitrogen surplus is that part of the part of the business that the farmers can control. So it's calculated from how much nitrogen leaves the farm in milk and meat 
subtracted from the amount of nitrogen that you buy in through fertilizer and supplements. So add those two together, subtract what leaves the farm, and we know the surplus. Now that surplus, the higher the surplus, the higher the risk of nitrate leaching. Mm. It's not guaranteed because, again, it comes down to the soils that those farms are sitting on. Mm. But the higher likelihood of leaching if you've got a big surplus, and a surplus also, Angus, from a business perspective, we want to minimise that surplus because we'd want to minimise the risk we lose nitrogen because it disappears out of our system. We want to capture that and turn it into plant material. Mm. So understanding your surplus, understanding how you can optimise your system to get the best returns with the lowest surplus is the kind of work that, that DairyNZ is leading with our farmers. And what the interesting link with greenhouse gases here is that as we reduce those surpluses, often we'll make decisions that will potentially lower our nitrous oxide emissions, but, but also perhaps more importantly, because more of our emissions come from methane, we might see changes to the system that result in less feed being fed and less greenhouse gas emissions. So we can get a win for the water, we can get a win for greenhouse gas emissions, then how do we do that in a way that maintains the profitability of that business? And that's where a lot of the focus is at the moment. How do we hit that triple sweet spot? That's really interesting. Now, if a farmer reduced their fertilizer application, what are some ways farmers can maintain the same dry matter they can grow? For example, are we seeing more pastures and crops being developed that require less fertilizer? And given the dry spell in many eastern parts currently, is there any advancements being made to improve outcomes in crops and pastures with less rain falling? Evans Angus, there's quite a few things in that question. I know. <laughs> uh, right. So let's start from a plant. Well, let's start from the nitrogen use perspective, shall we? You know, it's since the 1991, 92. That was when our when we 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 put a lot of messages out to farmers about the benefits from a lot of nitrogen fertilizer application and and we've seen you know the productivity gains have been very significant we've seen the success here in canterbury of the kind of production that we can achieve with the right amount of water and an abundance of nitrogen fertilizer you know we do recognize that the more nitrogen that goes on the less legumes in our pastures are contributing to the nitrogen availability for grass growth. So as we look to a future where regulation is going to set less use of nitrogen fertiliser, you know, firstly, we're going to potentially see a rebalance in the contributions coming from clovers in particular to the nitrogen in the, in the sward available for grass growth. So mm. that's number one. Mm. The second part, what's the contribution of, of plant breeding? Well, we've got a very active plant um, research and breeding community uh, in New Zealand and and we've got the Dairy NZ Forage Value Index and that's a great way of actually assessing the relative value of different cultivars to meeting different needs from farmers. So farmers can select a cultivar that's got more shoulder of the season production, for example. So there are opportunities to select based on the rigour that the forage value index does bring. So that's a huge opportunity for our farmers. As it gets drier, you know, and, and with a changing climate, we will see parts of New Zealand getting drier. And what we're seeing there is farmers, you know, particularly if we look at the upper North Island when it gets drier, the kind of choices they're making around pasture diversity, the use of, of um, you know, tall fescue, coxfoot, et cetera, is changing. Here in the south, as we look, you know, where we have an abundance of rainfall 
plus irrigation, we are still seeing those very high performing um, ryegrass-based pastures. Mm. But as we go forward, let's face it, if farmers see a value that delivers to their business, they will make changes. It's how mm. the science and the plant breeding community have the right uh, tools available for them, I think, is the challenge in the sort of role I have. Mm. What about from a stock perspective? Does a reduction in stocking rates necessarily mean a reduction in production? So a reduction in stocking rate doesn't mean a reduction in production. Let's perhaps first look, Angus, at uh, the sheep and beef sector, particularly sheep production, and look at what happened in the 1980s, where uh, with the re removal of subsidies, we saw uh, you know, ewe numbers drop, Mm. And we saw lambing percentage go from on average 100% to 12.5 kilo carcass to 120-odd percent with a 17.5 kilo carcass. Mm. You know, what a great example mm. of innovation in New Zealand farmers. Give them the right signals and look at how they respond. Mm. Mm. The best local example to where I'm sitting is the Lincoln University Dairy Farm, which demonstrated that it could reduce. Now, it, the Lincoln University Dairy Farm, it's about changing your inputs so Lincoln University reduced its use of supplements and it's reduced its use of nitrogen fertilizer that meant it had less feed available in the system and its response was to reduce cow numbers now it did hold its per hectare production doing that because they were getting more production per cow so production per cow went up significantly mm. And that enabled them to hold their production at their current levels. But how that's going to impact will depend on the current farming system and the current inputs into it. So it's not a one-size-fits-all one situation. Mm, that's really interesting. What about feed pads? I generally hear bad things about feed pads, but is there any evidence or particular methods used on a feed pad that actually can have a positive environmental outcome? Angus, this is not my area of expertise, okay. and I have colleagues who are uh, who have deep knowledge here. In terms of from a farm systems perspective, if we put animals on a feed pad for periods of time, we have the chance to reduce pugging, mm. and we so that's so that's better for our soils. It's potentially better for our cows as well if we've got a good feed pad that meets our animal um, well-being status mm. so if it does both of those things then it can have a double win it of course does mean that we need to have ways of managing the effluent while those animals are on that feed pad so that it can be contained and then it can be controlled and how it's returned to the environment and obviously then we have the opportunity to reduce our nitrate leaching reduce our pugging damage and if we manage it well not uh end up with more emissions from our greenhouse gases because when we are managing effluent there is opportunities for methane methane to be produced from that effluent so we've got to not cross pollute from you know remove nitrate leaching but replace it with greenhouse gases we need to have great systems that do keep both of those under control mm. And you touched on genetics as well, and improved genetics are clearly going to play an important role. What about food supplementation? Are we seeing any results in the reduction of methane in this area? So uh, genetics is really important. And of course, uh, the New Zealand dairy cow has, has, you know, the genetics have continued to improve. So when you say food supplements, do you mean, uh, so 
do you mean ways of reducing methane emissions in particular? Yes. Okay. So we've got a couple of things. One is AgriSearch has led the um, development of the low methane emitting sheep. So we, we know that there are now lines of sheep. And in fact, you can invite my colleagues onto your farm to have your rams assessed for their methane emissions. Mm. And we understand the heritability of that. So, so that's been proven with sheep. And that work is now underway, led by uh, our livestock improvement companies for the dairy sector. So that's great because farmers can, in making choices at the moment around the rams that they purchase and hopefully in the future with the, the bull selection, they will be able to select to have a long-term, a small contribution to methane emissions, but one that they can deliver year on year. So that's one part of it. The next part where New Zealand has been very active globally has been in selecting forages that have that are associated with lower methane emissions. Mm. We've seen some some good work around some of our forages. It's not simple. Uh, so my colleagues have identified a, um, a couple of crops that, that show real promise and we will continue to see New Zealand and the rest and, and we're well connected globally with understanding uh, the emission factors from different forages. So that's an ongoing opportunity. For example, you know, does plantain, which we're seeing, has the potential to reduce nitrate leaching in our systems, potentially nitrous oxide as well. What impact does plantain have when it's fed to livestock? So my colleagues are doing mm. that sort of work all the time. The next one is the feed additives. Yeah. And New Zealand, so we, we hear about feed additives that are in the market internationally. And my colleagues and others have been active in New Zealand evaluating these additives because remembering they've been developed in systems where the dairy cows are fed indoors, a partial or total mixed ration. Mm. So question one is, do they work when animals are fed a pasture-based diet like our animals are? Mm. So do they still deliver emissions reductions there? And a total mixed ration is a relatively dry ration. It's... Uh, grain-based, etc. Our pastures are 85% water. So the whole dynamics of the rumen are quite different. So one, do they work? Two, if they work, can we functionally deliver them in our grazing-based system? Remember our natural attributes, you know, our capacity to, to uh, send food around the world is based on pasture-based feeding. And that's, you know, that's a huge attribute for New Zealand. So how do we, can we deliver a product that will reduce our emissions and our animals are still pasture fed? So that's what the testing is doing. And that's ongoing. And my understanding, I don't know all the different products that are being tested, but I know they're coming in from around the world. Plus, my own colleagues have also been working on identifying um, other potential additives that might have a positive impact. Mm. That's really interesting, Robin. Um, as a thought, is there any evidence that doing things at the right time of year or certain times of the year can improve environmental outcomes on farm? And I mean, for example, fertiliser application at a certain point of the year and how relevant is soil temperature in terms of how the soil actually processes nitrogen and other fertiliser applications? Yeah, thanks, Angus. And I have colleagues who, for whom this is that they are experts in this space. From a farming systems perspective, where I operate in stepping up a level, we know, for example, in autumn, uh, urine 
landing on the pasture in autumn has a higher risk of nitrate leaching. Mm. And, and that's because uh, the pastures are potentially not growing as fast because they are, they are in a moisture stress. Mm. So if the nitrogen hangs around in that soil, and, and then of course winter's going to come with a lot of rainfall. So when we apply our fertilizer or our urine, it's ideal to do it when there is rapidly growing pastures to capture as much of our deposited nitrogen either as fertilizer or as urine as possible. So we do know autumn is particularly risky in many parts of New Zealand. So it's either because it's too dry and or it's getting too cold. So definitely soil temperature is incredibly important. Now I've been alongside my colleagues who have been or we, we have been and we still are running projects where we're looking at catch crops. So growing a crop in winter that our um, our dairy cows or in fact our sheep or beef are being fed on and then once the animals have finished that crop there's a lot of urine deposited. Uh, my colleagues have got some great data on the potential benefits of getting a catch crop, oats, triticale, something that will grow quickly in spring, getting it in the ground as early as possible and trying to capture some of that nitrogen before it's leached. So that's a strategy that farm, that's a tool that farmers have available is to put in something like a catch crop after there's been a lot of urine deposited during winter. So how do we mm. grab that urine, that ur that nitrogen deposited, and actually grow something? Mm. Now, one thing that's just uh, sprung to mind, and of course, this year, a big part of the Hiwaki Kanoa program is farmers knowing their numbers. In your experience so far, how are dairy farmers and sheep and beef farmers comparing just on knowing their numbers? Yeah, Angus, a great question. And look, Hiwaki Kanoa is such a great initiative led by our industries in partnership with government. So I fully support this partnership approach and our industries believe that we will see faster progress through partnership. And, and that first step is, you know, one, know your number. And then, then the next step, of course, is two, know your number and have a plan. Mm. So the dairy sector right now has the advantage of already needing to know their nitrate leaching so they will have potentially an overseer report or a one report generated by their uh, processor company and because all of that data you can use both to estimate losses to water and also to estimate greenhouse gas emissions mm. so the dairy sector is is overall tracking well in terms of knowing their numbers for and and the other the other part to the sector is farmers who are part of an irrigation scheme Mm. They've also needed to uh, have a nutrient plan, so they have their numbers. Yep. So we have a range across all the sectors that already know their numbers, either because their processor has required it or because their irrigation company. So we have a real challenge to support our farmers on this journey over the next 12 to 18 months to get as many people, one, knowing their number, and two, having a plan. Mm. So that's where, you know, we need to see the farm environment plans, more and more farmers coming on board. So at the moment, from knowing your number, the dairy farmers, we've got more dairy farmers knowing their numbers. We now need our sheep and beef farmers also taking that first step, mm. knowing their number. Mm. Robin, I know you are busy. I'll let you get on. Thank you very, very much for your time today. No problem. It was a pleasure to talk with you, Angus. Thank you to Robin. Some very interesting work she is doing and what she said around farmers responding well if given the right signals was bang on. 
Lambing percentages going from 100% to 120% and increased carcass weights during the 1980s is a good example. Indeed, some interesting results coming out of Lincoln University farms, where they have made a reduction in nitrate fertilizers and supplements. Less feed was produced, which led to a reduction in livestock numbers, but cow production increased, so per hectare production remained the same. As I've talked about many, many times, farmers have and are continuing to lead the way in system improvements year in, year out. Can other industries lay claim to the same achievements that have and are continuing to be made in the primary sector? Time will tell, but I seriously doubt it. That's all from me. Thank you for listening and catch you next time on Factum Agri.